I mean, not only was the war well underway, but ISIS was well underway. And, and, and they were sort of stunning the world with their brutality. And, uh, you know, I mean, they were just, not that they killed more people than anyone else, but they did it more publicly, more sadistically. And that, we, Nick and I felt like that needed some explaining. Like, what is that? Hi, and welcome back to the Modern War Institute podcast. I'm John Amble, editorial director at MWI. And this episode of the podcast features a conversation we're thrilled to bring to our listeners. Captain Jake Moraldi speaks to Sebastian Younger, a journalist, writer, and filmmaker whose work in recent years has helped readers and viewers to really understand wars and those who fight them. His latest project is called Hell on Earth, The Fall of Syria and the Rise of ISIS. In the film, Younger and his colleague Nick Quested take that same approach to capture what it's like for those who lived through the Islamic State's brutal takeover of vast stretches of territory in Iraq and Syria. The result is a story of war that is intense, emotional, at times uncomfortable, and very real. In the conversation, Younger explains why he decided to tackle this particular project after a series of books and films that focused on America's post-9-11 wars and the men and women who have fought them. He also discusses the impact the film had on him and what he learned from making it. Before we get to the conversation, just a couple quick notes. First, if you're not already doing so, find MWI on Twitter, Facebook, or LinkedIn. It really is a great way to stay up to date on all of the new articles, podcasts, research, and more that we're publishing every day. And second, as always, what you hear in this episode are the views of the participants and don't represent those of West Point, the Army, or any other agency of the U.S. government. All right, here's Captain Jake Moraldi and Sebastian Younger. Sebastian Younger, thank you for taking the time to sit down with us and, and discuss your new film, Hell on Earth. Uh, you know, we, we watched it in the office and it's an incredible piece of journalism and, and emotional and visceral and it's, uh, we're very honored to have you here to, to talk about it. Thank you. Well, I'm, I'm really glad to be here. Yeah. So, so what I want to lead off with is because you've written and done documentaries about war before, but it's always sort of been from an American perspective, kind of for lack of a better term. Um, and I'm curious how you arrived at the war in Syria and the, and the rise of ISIS as a topic that was yeah. of interest to you to make a documentary about. Yeah. Um, well, after my friend Tim Hetherington was killed in Libya, uh, obviously he was the, my colleague when I made Restrepo, we made Restrepo, I s decided to stop frontline war reporting. Um, and then this sort of Arab Spring happened, and there was, you know, I've, uh, most of the wars that I've covered um, were wars that did not have American soldiers in them. You know, I started in Bosnia in the early 90s, and I was all over Africa, and uh, I was in, in Afghanistan starting in the mid-90s. Mm -hmm. um, so the Arab Spring's exploding, and, and Nick and I are thinking, wow, this, you know, we should, we should cover this. I mean, this is amazing. What's had, the world's changing. And um, Syria ended up being... Uh, the worst, the most tragic, the bloodiest, the costliest of all those wars. Um, and he, he actually managed to sell the idea to National Geographic. Mm -hmm. And once they, once they bit, when they decided, okay, we'll do it, then we had to scramble to figure out how we're going to do it. There was, no, there was no way to go into Syria without it being a suicide mission. It wasn't just running risks on the battlefield. It was an almost certain, almost absolute certainty of being kidnapped by an al-Qaeda affiliate or ISIS and very possibly being killed. So that wasn't happening. So we had to figure out, um, you know, for the first time in my life, my fifth film, um, how do you make a film without being there? And that was a, that was a very difficult um, problem to solve. 
When when did the project get greenlit? Was this 2014-ish? So, I can't remember now. I think probably around 14, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So it was. It was very much the, the, the war was big. It was not yeah. it was not the the starting days of the war. It was no. it was well well underway. Yeah, I mean not only was the war well underway, but ISIS was well underway. I mean they were really starting to hit a sort of rolling boil um, in in Syria and in Iraq. And um, and, and, and they were sort of stunning the world with their brutality. And, um, uh, you know, I mean, they were just, not that they killed more people than anyone else, but they did it more publicly, mm -hmm. more sadistically. And that that really, I felt, we, Nick and I felt like that needed some explaining. Like, what is that? Why are they doing that? And how did this come to pass? Right. So in in the film, the rise to ISIS is, is predicated very much on a lot of what happens in Syria beforehand, sort of the collapse of the Syrian government and, and events that happened there with Bashar al-Assad and the, the Free Syrian Army. And then ISIS comes in to fill the void. Can you kind of explain how how you yeah. guys envision that working out in the in the documentary? So there was a, there's a lot of moving parts. So the war in Syria started, like the other Arab Spring uh, conflicts, started with uh, popular protests against corruption uh, against the author authoritarian regimes of those countries, uh, some of whom we were our our, ally, our active allies, um, these all of these governments in in the Arab countries that had these revolts, all of, all of those governments were basically criminal cartels um, that existed to serve their own uh, grip on power, and the the population rose up. Um, in response to the detention and torturing and murder of some teenage boys who had written some anti-Assad graffiti on their schoolhouse wall. And it was basically the parents in the streets. Uh, and that quickly became violent when the police, um, you know, the police would start shooting and then there'd be more deaths and then more then funerals and the funerals would turn into protests. And then if you do that for a while, you pretty soon you have a civil war. Sure. So this, the, the, the rebels started to arm themselves out of military barracks that they overran and became a sort of um, militia force, a, a, a somewhat organized militia force uh, that had real democratic ideals, uh, which of course Assad knew what, what is the West's soft spot, weak spot. Like if, there's a, if there are rebels who have a real democratic side, they really want to bring democracy to, a, to an Arab country, the West is going to give them weapons. The West sure. is going to support them. Um, so what Assad did is he released the most um, violent extreme, uh, Arab extremists that he had in his prisons. I mean, really hardcore jihadis. Uh, he released them from his prisons and put them back out there in the field uh, so that he could then plausibly say to the West, look, if you arm the rebels, you're basically arming al-Qaeda. And I'm your best bet in this in this equation. Um, that was sort of the begin. That was the sort of the yeast in the bread. And um, the other component of the rise to ISIS that we talk about in the film is the effect of the U.S. invasion of Iraq um, in 2003 and the unintended, obviously unintended consequences of that. Um, briefly, we we overthrew Saddam Hussein. Um, we brought in a Shia government um, that wound up being quite oppressive against the Sunni population. Um, the Sunni population couldn't defend itself. There were death squads. There were people getting rounded up, tortured, imprisoned. Um, and uh, ISIS eventually 
stepped into that void as a as a, a militia that vowed to not only protect the uh, Sunni population but to eradicate corruption from the territory that they controlled. Mm -hmm. and, and when you offer a, a civilian population that's really economically crushed by endemic corruption in the government, if you offer them an end to the corruption, they will they will take you up on it, even if they don't like your violent and extremist ideology, they will take you up on it. That's how the Taliban got in power. Um, that's how Boko Haram in Nigeria uh, gained power, Al-Shabaab in Somalia. That is the common denominator to a lot of these extremist organizations. So, um, and also, the, the, as one Iraqi photographer explained to us, um, the invasion of Iraq just introduced an awful lot of violence into Iraqi society. You know, just a lot of dead people in the streets, you know, a lot of a lot of really ugly things and normalized violence. So when you get the sort of, um, uh, as, a, as the phrase goes in, in Clockwork, Clockwork Orange, uh, ultraviolence, the ultraviolence of ISIS, um, it, you know, it has its roots in the normalization of violence that came uh, after the U.S. invasion of Iraq. So you combine all of that, and then you have ISIS overrunning um, military barracks, uh, four or five divisions worth of mil military um, uh, equipment uh, in Iraq. So now you have a jihadi army that's fully equipped with modern military equipment and controls territory. And and going back to Syria, they now ha and, and in northern Iraq, they now have they now control oil fields and the oil refineries, and they have a black market set up to sell that oil overseas, even selling it to Israel. Uh, when you have when you put all that together, you have effectively a caliphate. So I think. The film doesn't does an outstanding job of connecting all those sort of disparate points of connection that sort of explain the rise of ISIS. I think the other thing that it does really well is it, it puts something of a, a human face on the catastrophe that was Syria in particular, and and especially once um, portions of Syria come under the control of ISIS. And I'm curious how how you conceptualize that more human face in the larger not faceless struggle, but the, the more geopolitical context of, of yeah. ISIS. So th this, was, this was a tricky film to make for a number of reasons. One was how to get access to, to Syria and actually sh get footage out of you know, ISIS territory. Um, but the other was that we wanted to make a, um, a very human film, a film that compelled people's, um, compelled people's sort of um, compassion and sympathy. Um, but also a film that stepped back and explained the history, explained the big picture, the strategy, like why is this happening? Okay, people are suffering, why are they suffering? To do, when I made Restrepo, we were explaining the Afghan war, right? We weren't, there was no context. There was, we, we had, we, we only looked at the things that soldiers were concerned with and the soldiers actually weren't thinking about strategy and context and history, they were just fighting. So Restrepo was very, very easy to make because it was totally subjective. Mm -hmm. There were no history lessons in it, right? Um, this film was different. And so the way we brought in the, the sort of human element was we were fortunate enough through some connections that Nick made in Turkey. Uh, Nick sort of worked the Turkish-Syrian border very, very vigorously for, he did 30 or 40 trips over there. And basically he would find Syrians in Turkey who had relatives mm -hmm. in Syria. Um, and uh, or smugglers or fixers or where, I mean there was he had made all kinds of connections and so we got people in Syria sort of working for us, uh, shooting shooting uh, video. So okay. one of his contacts had a, had uh, brothers who were trapped in ISIS territory, 
and um, they were thinking about trying to get out with their families. So we got a camera, uh, a nondescript camera, like a Samsung 6, I think it was, uh, and some hard drives, uh, some chips, um, into that family in Manbij. And they documented life under ISIS, their conversations about, leave, you know, should we leave? Um, and uh, and their fi finally their escape through I ISIS checkpoints. You know, a situation where they're under a tarpaulin in the back of the truck. If they were discovered, they'd be shot. I mean, with all their children. I mean, that kind of situation. They, but they, they document, they self-documented all of it. And they documented all the way through into Turkey and then into rubber zodiac rafts trying to get to Greece. Um, that family is so, um, they're, they're such just sort of beautiful people in every sense. Uh, they're so dignified. They're so respectful of, of other religions, of other people. Um, they're so clearly good moral human beings. Um, in such a terrible, terrible situation with their children, and we, they, they do a very, very good job at, I think, saying to viewers, to and particularly to American viewers, in this era of a very heated debate about immigration and refugees, you know what they're able to say to the to viewers is, look, we're people just like you. Like if you if you all were stuck in a civil war, you'd be doing what we're doing, and you'd be hoping that some good country would open their doors to you, and, and here we are. And, and so it's, um, you know, I don't, uh, as a journalist, I never, I, never t want to, I never want to tell people how to think, right? That's their business. Um, I don't tell people what to think, but I try to tell people what to think about. And, 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 and for me, this family um, gives Americans, particularly Americans who are skeptical of immigrants, foreign immigrants, gives them a lot to think about. They may come to my conclusions, or they may not, but that, that's not my concern. What I have to do is put the material in front of people so that they can have a um, sort of ethical and, and enlightened conversation with themselves about this problem. Sure, and, and I, I know from our, from our own personal experiences, I watched this with, with my wife the other night to prepare for this interview, she she personally was very affected because we you know we have small yeah. children of roughly the yeah, same age right, as, as that right. family and um, it, it was for her who doesn't typically sort of follow the larger geopolitical stuff right. and, and she just is not attuned to it. It brought the problem in Syria and and, and Iraq home in a way that maybe watching the news wouldn't or watching a straight yeah. documentary about ISIS right. wouldn't. Um, so. I think you guys are very, very successful in doing that. Oh, um, thank you, thank you. I will say, it was it was interesting that you talked about how how war or Restrepo was an easier film to make, um, in that you're just documenting what what soldiers do, and yeah. and there's no sort of larger geopolitical thing to tie it to. But I think what people love about Restrepo and Korngal is it really does provide a human face for what a lot yeah. of people is just yeah. a uniform. Um, yeah. And for me, I think that's the best connection I can come up with between this film, Hell on Earth, and, and your previous documentaries about Afghanistan is putting a human face to something that is yeah. not necessarily a human face for most people. Right. Um, and I assume that was partially, partially yeah. the goal, kind of, kind of with all those films. Absolutely. So. I mean, basically, people aren't going to watch the history lesson if there aren't some human beings to relate sure. to. Right? But if it's all human beings, that's fine, and that's what Restrepo was, and it did humanize American soldiers, um, it humanized them 
frankly, for con conservatives as well as liberals, you know, in different ways, right? right? Because those two groups are bringing different assumptions, different prejudices to the topic. And I feel like the film stopped both of those groups and said, hey, wait a second, this is who these people are. Um, uh, but if you, if you do that, if we had done that with just with Syria, if we had an entire film about this family, which we could have done, it might have been very moving and compelling, but people would have, at the end of 90 minutes, would be like, well, why is this happening in the first place? Sure. Like, what, like what's, what, it's moving, but why, what, what, what happens, right? So we don't want all history lesson. You don't want all, in a film like this, you don't want an all human story. Mm -hmm. We felt like we needed to blend them. Yeah, I actually feel like, as I watched this, the, the work that you've done previously that I feel like meshed up most with the combination of, of the human element and some, some cause and effect was, was really tribe in that you sort of describe what people are, are feeling and then yeah. expand out and discuss right. why that is yeah. happening. Um, yeah, absolutely. And, and I wonder if that was, was in, your, in your mind as you were making this film. And, and I, I hadn't sort of drawn that parallel. I mean, the, I mean um, uh, tribe, I was trying to explain a phenomenon and again, if you, if I'd done a sort of Restrepo version of it, I just would have, I, I would have been able to sort of draw portraits of people that made them, that made readers realize human beings need community. Um, but I'm not sure they would have had a sort of broad understanding of why mm -hmm. and what happens when they don't get it, right? And there's plenty of academic papers about loneliness, about group dynamics about, you know, whatever, like all that stuff. Um, they're academic papers. Like people aren't going to read them. I, mean, I could barely get through them, you know, and I was researching my book. You know, that's pretty dry stuff. So, so somewhere, you know, the, I mean, the job of a, of a popular writer, I mean, meaning a non-academic writer, the job of a popular writer is to bring that knowledge that is sometimes very hard to get through, bring it into a, put it into a form that the average person can not only understand, but can f find themselves interested in. Uh, that's the that's the trick, and it's it's actually hard, to, you know, quite hard to do. So we have some cadets actually right now watching the film. What do you hope that they get from a film like this, especially given the nature of the the work that they're going to be doing yeah. shortly? Right, we had branch night here last night. Cadets got their future branches. The the seniors did, yeah. so they know what job they'll be doing right. for the next five years and. Um, I'd be curious what you would like them to take away from a from a film like this. Um, boy, I mean, I met many things. Um, I want all people to have a more compassionate and, and sort of human understanding of the legions of uh, of people in the world who are poor, who are powerless, and who are caught up in the sort of gears of history through no fault of their own. And just because you're a war refugee doesn't mean you did something wrong. You know what I mean? It, it, yeah. Just because you wind, wind up fighting in Aleppo because your neighborhood's getting overrun by extremists doesn't mean that you're that you lo you know love war and why do these people want to kill them kill each other. You know, mm -hmm. like which I hear about civil wars sometimes from people like if these people want to kill each other, let them. You know, like, like we're we're the United States is a, is a um, is the most powerful country in the world and. Um, you know, up, up until this point has been its sort of most idealistic and noble democracy. 
And we, we're in a position to do a huge amount of good, mm -hmm. but we can also do a human, huge amount of harm or we can let a huge amount of harm happen that we could have prevented. It, it's a huge responsibility for this country and, and a huge opportunity as well. And so, you know, I want cadets to, to see people of other nations, other colors, other, other races, other religions, fully as human beings. Mm -hmm. That's extremely important. War de dehumanizes people. You, have, you must fight against that because um, if you pursue that way of thinking, and it's natural enough to do it, um, if you pursue that way of thinking, um, you wind up in a dynamic w with a foreign population, with a foreign country, you wind up in a dynamic where you will not win the war you're fighting. I don't think you can win a war against an enemy that you have completely dehumanized. I, I mean, I just, I don't, for one reason or another, it, 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 we couldn't pull it off in Vietnam, we couldn't pull it off in Iraq and Afghanistan, like, it doesn't work. You really have to take those people for what they are, which is human beings, and that doesn't mean wars don't get fought, but it's a different way of thinking about them. And I think, um, I mean, just one example is civilian casualties from, from bombs. I mean, civilian casualties create insurgents, right? And it's, if you really understand their humanity, you'll be a little more careful, uh, we will be a little more careful with that kind of ordinance. And it took us a long, you know, in Afghanistan, I, you know, I started going there in the mid-90s, and it was a country that I really cared about, a lot before 9-11. I mm -hmm. mean, you know, I, and, I, you know we, and we all watched the civilian casualty rate from our bombing raids go down, which means it shouldn't have been that high in the first place. You know, just by definition, if we were able to bring it down, it was too high when it started. That created a huge problem for us. That literally killed American soldiers later on. So I want to hum humanize those people. Um, and um, also, I, you know, just in terms of wielding, wielding power, the, the young men and women that are being trained in this academy, in this school, um, will, are taking the reins of the most powerful military in the world. And um, if you don't use it carefully, as uh, many believe we didn't in Iraq, um, you can create generational problems. And uh, you know, I think in some ways it's not a particularly, quote, patriotic film. I'm, you know, I'm pretty blunt about what I think our errors were mm -hmm. in Iraq, but um, blind patriotism costs American lives. In the, end, in the long run, it's like, it's actually a very um, unpatriotic way to think because it costs lives. And, and I'm hoping that that sort of tough lesson that I hope we imparted with some, with some dignity and respect. I, 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 I'm, I'm hoping it'll maybe help prevent future, future poor decisions that will cost America and the world as well. So having the, the view that you have of the, the conflict in Iraq and Syria, and obviously the Islamic State has been pushed back and, and has lost Raqqa, and, and the situation maybe has the potential to stabilize? I'm, I'm curious how you sort of see the, the near term for, for the region there based on this film. And I, I, hate, yeah. I hate to ask predictive questions. Yeah. No, I no, I are no, afraid yeah. to go out on a limb like that, but. Um, yeah, I, I mean, it's a, you know, it's a super complex situation with a lot of moving parts. You know, it's like trying to predict the weather. The, you know, the, I mean, supercomputers can't do it because there's too many, too many data points. But first of all, a anyone who's backed by Iran, Hezbollah, and Putin is not going to be, not is not going to be removed from power. Assad is there to stay. Um, the uh, I think you might 
ISIS is getting rolled up, but that doesn't mean we, the West won't continue to be attacked by people that adhere to those principles. But ISIS is getting rolled up on the ground with, as, it, m as it must. I mean, it, that, I mean, that thing needs to be eradicated, <laughs> um, if only for the good of the people of Syria and Iraq, uh, not to mention the rest of the world. So that's, that's, the, that's sort of the good news. The bad news is there's now this vacuum with a lot of competing militia groups. There's the Kurds, there's FSA groups. Um, there's, um, for that matter, there's the U.S. military in the middle of all of it. Um, and there's Assad's forces. And so groups that were formerly allied um, might actually now fall into conflict with each other. Um, I mean, the, the, the Shia, Shia militias in northern Iraq and the Kurds are now staring at each other down the barrels of a gun, right? The Kurds now feel emboldened and they want a, a, an autonomous Kurdish zone, basically a, their own country. Mm -hmm. um, that will that will create a regional war, absolutely. Turkey, um, I mean, Turkey wants a big chunk of this, right? Um, and I, like, so I, I actually think I actually think we could see a war in that region um, if the, if the, if those other surrounding countries didn't have an interest in this. I think it would be okay, but they do. Iraq does, Turkey does, Russia does, Iran does. Um, Saudi and Saudi Arabia and Iran are, um, you know, possibly, you know, possibly in conflict with each other. So any countries that are in conflict, possibly in conflict with each other, have that play out that conflict with surrogates before the big war starts, right? So that's going to happen, right? So I think you actually really could see a regional war in that, in that area that lasts, um, you know, a generation or two. I mean, like literally. Till you and I, you know, are both gone. Um, it, there's a Shia-Sunni conflict that has been brewing for, you know, 150 years now, and it it it, it really well may be on the way, um, and and not avoidable. So that's that's the that's not even Syria, right? That is the Arab world, uh, the Persian world clashing um, in in a sort of titanic conflict. I, hopefully that doesn't happen, but I could see it happening. Um, so what I what I want to leave, leave you with is less of a less of a question and more of a more of a comment, and it's to echo Colonel Austin's introduction that we did before coming into in the podcast recording, and it's to thank you for your your efforts with with soldiers, and I know that came from interactions with soldiers in one seventy third and and your experiences in Afghanistan and with with Tim Hetherington, um, and I know from a soldier's perspective and from our sort of population that there's a lot that you've done that I think resonates with us and I, I think helps us contextualize our experiences a little bit more than maybe uh, if, if those sort of things didn't exist. Um, so I want to personally say I, I appreciate your, your work and, and thank you very much for doing it. Well, th thank you. And, and I have to say, you know, I've been a journalist um, my whole adult life and, the, and I've done a lot of interesting things, I think, but the the part of my career that was mostly focused on uh, the U.S. military, the last 10 years basically, Mistrepo um, and the other films, and War and Tribe, um, you know, for me has been sort of the high point of my career. Um, and I've done some cool things, but this really, as a body of work, like I, I feel incredibly lucky that I was able to do it, that the guys that I was placed with, embedded with, 
um, Battle Company uh, 173rd that they accepted me, uh, even even grew to like me <laughs> and Tim. Uh, and I feel incredibly lucky and honored that it sort of worked out that way. So um, yeah, thank you for saying that. Hey, thanks again for listening to the MWI podcast. Before you go, we have one quick thing to ask of you. If you're enjoying the podcast, we'd love it if you'd take a few seconds and leave us a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's a great way to help new listeners find us. All right, thanks again.